If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke 16. And while you're turning there, I'm going to talk a lot. I know you're not surprised. One thing I'm going to encourage you to do over these next two uh, sermons, this week and next week, is take a lot of notes. And in order to encourage that, we are out of pens, but we do have sermon booklets that we want to give to you. So if you need one in order to take notes, raise your hand. Let's get this in your hands now. That would be very, very important. Brenda, would you mind to pass this down, please? Thank you very much. Who else? Who else? Okay. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I thought you were raising your hand. I was like, that's what? I expect better out of Emily. Here we go. Oh, thank you. Huh? You got a pen? Roger has one pen. They are a rarity now. Here we go. There we are. In the back, in the back, in the back. And we encourage you that if you have, if you have lost out on uh, last week's sermon, we're starting to talk about the church. Yes. Need one too? Okay. Zach, thank you. Who needs a pen? Uh-oh. Can we do this? Throw it over? No, I'm not going to do that to you, man. There's a lot of people I care about between. So, they've been nice to me. I, I believe they pray for me, so I'm going to spare them. It's good. It's good. We're talking about the church. Aside from the Lord Jesus Christ, this is one of my most favorite subjects in all of Scripture. And the reason is, is because I think the reason why we have so much struggles in churches nowadays whether it be a church that is closing, whether it be a church that got mad and thought they needed to start another church, is we don't recognize the significance and the central point of Jesus Christ in the midst of the church. He has called us to great things that we haven't even touched yet. Things that are fully available to us and ready for us to take up and to run valiantly in because His Spirit is fueling it. His Word is a central banner of which we hold and He's paved the way with his blood. There's a lot of privilege we have. And my greatest fear is that often as a church, we just don't take advantage of it. Now, let me tell you why we're starting to look at dispensations, okay? The reason why we're looking at dispensations is because God has a plan that he is outworking in all of history from beginning to end. He knows exactly what's going on. Nothing of it whatsoever surprises him at all. But if we don't understand the plan that he is unfolding, we will not gain any kind of significant grasp on where we are in his unfolding plan. The church age is unlike anything else that has ever gone on in history. And so in order to understand the parameters of what dispensations do, that is going to set up a framework for us to say, here's where the church is and we have to use this opportunity wisely. Everybody with me? Okay, so let's write down some things first to start out. Number one, the word dispensation. D-I-S-pensation. Okay, you guys write that down? And let me give you a definition real quick for it. It is from a Greek word called oikonomia. Now, if that sounds slightly familiar to you, it's because where we get the English word economy and economics from is the idea. So I'm going to give you a little bit of time to write it down. If you've participated in hermeneutics class, this is probably going to be more like hermeneutics class than it is like Sunday morning sermon. Like, oh, why did I come today? Because the Lord brought you here and he obviously wants you to hear this, okay? 
The temptation is going to be to walk through these instances that we're going to see, and I want to go ahead and explain the wonderful truth that's going on, but that's not really the point of what we're doing today. We are simply researching this word today. It comes from two Greek words, this compounded. So oiko, which means house, and nomia, which means law, or namas, which means law. And the idea is house law. Now let's go ahead and go to the next one, Mitch. Essentially, it means to manage or to regulate something, to administer or to plan. Now that is probably from the most uh, used Greek lexicon that there is in people's possessions. Charles Ryrie said the central idea in the word dispensation is that of managing or administering the affairs of a household. That's the idea. So here's what we're seeing. And and, and real quick, if you're not able to get this down, Mitch has agreed to put the slides with these particular things up on the website next to the sermon. So if you were to go and you were to click on the sermon, you would also go and you'd be able to see these slides and be able to get this down if for some reason that you don't. We have a lot to cover today. And I don't want to. I don't want to take a, a huge long amount of time. None of you believe that. I want to take forever to do this. But what I'm actually going to go over today should be about a two-hour lesson in order for us to understand all of it. And so my fear is that I'm going to leave you at the end. And you're going to go, well, good grief, what was that all about? Well, next week I'll let you know what it was all about. But I'm going to try to tie it up in a nice, sweet little bow. Okay. So the idea is, is that when we talk about a dispensation, we are talking about that God is stewarding or managing or administering a certain plan that he desires to fulfill in particular different ages throughout history. Not just church history, Israel's history, creation, time of Noah, the coming kingdom. He has got something that he wants to orchestrate and to execute in every one of these eras. Now, the temptation is to think that a dispensation is a time period. It's not. And the reason is, is because they don't all last at a certain time. As easily as one dispensation starts, another dispensation could come in and overrule that and take some of the things from the previous dispensation and move it forward, okay? Now, you might say, good grief, I don't have a clue what in the world you're talking about. Give me four weeks, okay? This week and three other weeks, and you will have it down, and then you'll want to explain it to your friends, and hopefully they'll get saved, okay? It'll be good. Now, in order to understand why dispensations make sense, we have to have a little lesson in hermeneutics. Now, please write this lesson, please write this word down. Hermeneutics. That's not a guy named Hermeneutics, okay? Hermeneutics. This is the art and science of Bible interpretation. Why is that? Well, it's a science because there are certain parameters, certain guidelines that you have to follow. It's an art because you have to apply those guidelines skillfully to everything that you are reading in the Bible. And so it is important for us to grasp this. And the hermeneutics point is going to be brought up again next week. And we are going to expound upon this idea so that we get it. So when we talk about what are hermeneutics, it is you interpreting the Bible. But we have to interpret it as the Bible desires to be interpreted. We can't simply bring our viewpoint to it. Now, 
Two important points that you need to know about hermeneutics. Number one is plain literal. Plain literal is taking the words for exactly what they say. When it says Jesus wept, that means that he cried and sobbed a lot. It is not to be spiritualized into anything else. When it talks about that Jesus at the feast, the wedding feast, said bring stone pots here and fill them with water and he turns the water into wine now the baptist and legalists got real freaked out real quick didn't they they hate john chapter two but he turned the water into wine and they tasted of it and said this wine is sweeter than what began usually the master brings out the best wine and then after everybody's drunk it up for a little while he brings in the cheap stuff And starts to feed it to them after that. Why? Because they're so inebriated they don't know the difference. But you have taken the best stuff and you brought it out now. Those stone water pots do not symbolize Israel. Because their hearts are full of stone. And the water that is poured into them is the water of the word. And when the water of the word is poured into the stone pots, it becomes as sweet as wine. Well, that's what God's going to do with Israel. That is spiritualizing the text. Anybody notice that the pots are still made of stone? How do you figure that one? It sounds real good. I'll be honest with you. Spiritualizing makes for really persuasive preaching. There's only one problem. It's not biblical. Now, if you just got saved when I talked about the spiritualization of the water parts, you're not saved. Okay? (laughs) That's important. That's important to understand. The second thing we want to look at is figurative literal that means that a figure of speech has been used and while it is expressive and while it is vivid it still has a literal meaning on the other side of it if you look at somebody and said oh buddy the writing's on the wall which by the way is from the book of daniel that's where they get those uh, uh what are those called idioms sure i don't know but that's what they're called Maybe. Um, Whenever you use those figures as speech, is it the writing's on the wall, and so the guy should turn around and somebody's going, is that what we're talking about? Or no, we're talking about your time is up, right? The experience is plain. You've obviously run out of time in this situation. I feel bad for that guy. You know, he kicked the bucket. Did he hurt his foot in the process? No, we're not talking about that. We mean he passed away. Everybody see that? So we we take figures of speech in the Bible and we try to reason through those and we say just because it's a figure of speech doesn't mean that we all of a sudden get crazy with the text that we're dealing with. We're looking for a plain meaning still on the other side of that. Now, I'm asking you to take that information and to put it back here and just to hold on to it. Because especially next week, we're going to unfold it. But we cannot continue forward talking about dispensations if we don't understand the whole idea that there are basic rules of interpretation. Spiritualizing a text is never, never permissible. It means what it says. Now, Mitch, let's go to the next one. So here's what we're dealing with. Is the word dispensation biblical? As a matter of fact, It is. It's mentioned 20 times in the New Testament. Once as a verb, 19 times as a noun. And you say, good grief, that's a lot to write down. It is. But I'm going to give you tons of time. 
We are going to start with one of the references. Now, I didn't put down Luke chapter 12 for us to go through because I saved that for our fourth graders through our eighth graders, and that should be a fun exercise for you Sunday school teachers. That's some really fun stuff in Luke 12. But we want to start in Luke 16. So turn with me if you should already have Luke 16 out. And let's take a look at it here. We're going to start in verse 1. We'll go for a little while. That Remember, the temptation is, well, good grief, what in the world does that mean? That's not our goal today. I will try to elaborate and give you some of those things. But my goal is, I want you to see that this word is used over and over and over. And as we look at the words, we're going to formulate our own definition from how the biblical writers use the word. It's not just, well, Jeremy says it means this. Charles Ryrie says it means this. Pastor Steve says it means this. None of that stuff. We want to know what the Bible means by the use of this word. So everybody look, chapter 16, verse 1. Now he, that's Jesus, was also saying to the disciples, now notice, that's his audience. There was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Manager. Oikonomos is the name, or is the word for it. And it means that he is a steward. So when you see this word manager, it is the word oikonomia. It's used here, speaking of dispensation or a stewardship or a management situation that is to be dealt with. You want to mark that. You want to look at that. So notice it says here a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possession. All right, now simple question time. Is that good or bad? That's bad, right? We can say that we say that confidently. Verse 2, and he called him and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Management, manager. Same words. Management, manager. How are you managing? Anybody here ever been a manager? What is entailed with that? A lot of work. What else? A lot of responsibility. What else? Accountability. A lot of knowledge. You have to be knowledgeable. You have to be accountable. You have to be responsible. You have to be willing to put in the time. Everybody see that this word has this entire idea of responsibility tied around it. Yes? It's important that we see this. If you, don't, if you don't even agree with me, just say yes when I say yes, okay? That's good. You'll, 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 think, you'll think me later, I promise, okay? Responsibility is the idea. Now watch how this moves forward. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? Manager, management. Here it's being used over and over and over and over to show us what the meaning of this word is. So what is he to do? And look what it says. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. Verse 4. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, there it is again, oikonomia, the idea, the administration, the stewardship, people will welcome me into their homes. And that's what he comes up with. So he begins calling individuals, and even though they may owe $100, he's saying, you know what, pay me 50 and we're good to go. Now, in this situation, the head guy has a lot of loans that are out, and the accusation against the manager is he's been shaving a little bit off the top and padding his pocket with it. 
You've been unfaithful with this. Well, how can I make things right? That's the accusation against him. How can he do it? I know. I will get as much of the master's money in as I possibly can. I will deal shrewdly with what I have left so that I will have a good showing. And even though I lose my job, those people that I helped out along the way will hopefully return the favor after the fact. Does everybody see that? Yes? Okay, so let me give you one more instance where this is used. Go over to verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous manager, the unrighteous steward, is the idea there. In verse 8, same word, market, same word. The unrighteous steward, because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And watch this application real quick. I can't get away from it. We got to hit it. Verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. Now, the wealth of unrighteousness, you say, good grief, are you saying get involved with the mob so you can start laundering money and it come out well for you? No, that's not what it's saying. It's the idea of dealing with money well. Did he find himself in a bad situation? Has he been unfaithful? He has. And so now the question is, is now that you're going to be held accountable for your unfaithfulness, what are you going to do between then and the time that you get removed? You better shape up. Because I need a man. It couldn't help it. But anyway, (laughs) it just went there. But you got to get it together. Because when it comes time for you to be let go from your job, you want to end well and have a good showing. Does anybody see how this could relate to the idea of the Christian life? If you have been living your life and squandering what God has entrusted to you, stop now because now you know that it's wrong. You will be held accountable at the judgment seat of Christ. You don't lose your salvation, but you will be held accountable for how you stewarded, how you managed your life. If that's the case, shape up and end well. Get it together and make the best showing that you can before the end of your life. That's the idea respond to it everybody see manager manage management manager manage manage everybody see it over and over again yes excellent now here's what's interesting that is the only time that this word is ever used outside of paul's writings this is a predominantly paul word so now we're going to turn to paul's writings everybody turn to romans 16 and by the time we're done with today If you ever have a question about anything in the Bible that you've ever wondered about, I'm showing you right now how to go through it. List out all the instances where it occurs, look at the surrounding context, and come to a conclusion of what the meaning is. That's just basic, good, solid Bible study. Look at Romans 16, verse 23. It says, Gaius, host of me, and the whole church greets you. Erastus... The city treasurer greets you. Everybody see that word treasurer? Market. Oikonomos. Steward. Manager. He is the city treasurer. He greets you. And Quartus, the brother. What does a city treasurer do? Spend your money. Thank you, Tom. It would be Tom that would say that. What does a city treasurer do? What's involved in that position? Responsibility? Better be. Last thing you want is a lot of mad citizens picketing your lawn. It's not good. Managing the finances. It's an oversight situation. Keeping sound records. Making wise decisions. It is something that must be overseen, managed, responsibility, and 
Let's be honest. If you have a city treasurer who's not faithful to the task, are you going to elect them for another term? No, you're not. Why? Because we know the difference between right and wrong. We know the difference between truth and lie. And you got swindlers in there. Got to go, right? Gone. Treasurer. Notice the same word interpreted here is used as the word treasure. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at the first two verses here. And again, jot these down in your sermon booklet. If you want, you can go back, take a look at them. But the main thing that we're concerned about is seeing the uses of this word so that we come to a biblical conclusion about what it means. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner. Now, this is Paul talking. As servants of Christ and stewards, there it is, stewards of the mysteries of God, as managers of the mysteries of of God. If you know anything about Paul's life, you know that there were truths about the church that were revealed to him in his writings that weren't revealed to anyone else in scripture. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He I mean, everybody remembers his story, right? He's having a nice sunny day, just came from the Hallmark store, he's ready to go kill some Christians. Everybody remember that one? And all of a sudden Jesus says, "Mm-mm." And knocks him off of his donkey. And I love it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I love the first words out of his mouth. Who are you, Lord? (laughs) Now, I'm so thankful that out of all the gifts that Jesus had, he didn't have the gift of sarcasm. But man, what a miraculous conversion. And from that moment, he was never the same. And there were things that were entrusted to Paul for him. That's why he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. There were things that were given to him that he had to faithfully, responsibly oversee and dispense properly, or it would lead to a crooked church. Now, if we know anything about the churches that he writes to in the Bible, they're all decently crooked as it is anyway, right? We especially have a problem with First California. I mean, First Corinthians, right? We do. Sorry. Sometimes I slip, but he already had a problem with First Corinthians. They had all kinds of problems. And notice these are the ones exactly who he's writing to. He has a message. He is a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, remember, when we see the word mysteries, it's not like Scooby-Doo mysteries. Mysteries means something that was previously not known. But in this current time, and it's interesting because he wrote this during the church age, the exact same dispensation that we're in right now. During this time, it was to be revealed so they would understand. Now, pause for a second. And if you think back to last week, this is the whole idea of progressive revelation. If you start with the very beginning of creation and as time goes on, the timeline gets larger and larger and you learn more and more about God and his plan as you keep reading from one cover to the other cover of your Bible. It's the exact same thing. In history, Paul is given the responsibility. He is a steward. He is a manager over this truth to unfold. So he says, verse 2, in this case, moreover, watch this, it is is required of stewards, there it is again, exact same thing he was talking about before, of stewards that one be found what? Trustworthy. The highest quality is a necessity. 
You cannot divorce the responsibility that he has in unfolding the mysteries of God about the church to the church and all that has happened in Christ to unite Jew and Gentile together into one new man. He cannot afford to be sloppy with this. Sloppiness is unacceptable. There is great responsibility. How about move over to chapter 9. And this is really interesting to see his level of engagement with this responsibility. He's going to give us two options. And what's really interesting is, we're going to like this one, church. He actually propositions this argument based on how he feels. Uh-oh, is his F train out of whack? No, it's not. He's got it in the right place. Okay, now watch this. Chapter 9, verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, every preacher just got saved on that one, right? But verse 17, watch. For, here's his causal conjunction. If I do this voluntarily. Now, let's be honest. Stop for a second. There are some days where it seems really easy to share the gospel of Jesus with people. Whether it be the fact that God just kicked wide open the doors or you just woke up, you know, you didn't even have to bend to get up. You just kind of went, oh, because it was all sunny out. You're like, yes, it's going to be a great day. And you just feel good about it. So notice what he says here. If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. If I'm excited and I want to pursue it and I'm, I'm, I'm just super jazzed about what Jesus has done for people and I want to let people know the Lord is going to reward me because I'm so zealous to serve him in a faithful way in preaching the gospel. But look what he says after that. But if against my will, uh-oh, he's got a case of the Mondays, right? He is Debbie Downer. Oh, I need to preach the gospel, but I really don't feel like it. Okay, if it's against my will, Notice what he says. Here's, here is how Paul corrects his mind so that his emotions don't take control. I have a what? Stewardship, exact same word. I have a management situation here. I have an administration. I have a plan or a responsibility that has been placed in my hands. I've been commissioned for this reason, and I have to dispense it. Look what he says here. I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Man, that's a big word entrusted to me. Can you imagine? Paul, I am trusting you with this message. Do you realize that that's what Jesus has done to every one of us? We have a stewardship to fulfill because we are light bearers of the gospel. We've been called to go and make disciples of all nations. We've been entrusted with that task. Let me ask you a question. How are you doing? Are you going to be found faithful? Thank you for answering out loud. But being honest about it. Yeah, if I have to look at the situation, I'm not doing so well. Let me ask you a question. When we see it from Paul's perspective, does it make us want to do it more? I hope so. Is anybody excited about making disciples? Well, no. Sadly, some of us have the Mondays every day. If the day ends in Y, we consider that Monday. That's terrible. That'll catch up with you here in just a minute. You'll give, it, give it a second. See, I told you. But if you're excited about voluntarily meeting with people, loving them, meditating on the word with them, spending time in prayer, time in prayer for them, loving on them, that's what making disciples is. Jesus Christ being the central, his word being the fuel, the Holy Spirit igniting the fire. 
And just being invested in one another, having love, exercising love for one another. If you do that voluntarily, guess what you have? What's the passage say? If you do it voluntarily, he has a what? Reward. Ain't no different from you. Paul put his robe on just like we do. It ain't no different for us. We'd have a reward as well. But notice the stewardship has been entrusted to him. It's been entrusted to us. That's what we're called to do. Nothing else. It's what we're called to do. This is a good one. Galatians 4. Turn over to Galatians 4 verses 1 and 2. And I tried to get these going through our Bibles in, 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 the, in the format that the books are, are written in. That way we wouldn't have to be turning back and forth. This is interesting because he's speaking of a family situation. And it'll come together for you what exactly he's talking about. Look at chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, okay, as long as the heir is a minor, if you've got the marginal note there, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. In other words, he doesn't really have any rights at that time because he's a child. He needs to grow up. He needs to learn what it is to have responsibility. He needs to be entrusted with those types of things as time goes on. But look what it says in verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers. Everybody see that? Exact same word, market. Market. Under managers. In other words, those who are overseeing the responsibility of child rearing. If you're a parent... You have an oikonomia before you to raise your children well. You have a responsibility before you. You have a mandate from the Lord to take care of business. You have to do it faithfully. Notice it says here, he has guardians and managers until the date set by his father, until the time when you fulfilled your responsibility, and now they are fully grown and they are exhibiting what you have invested. Are you investing well in your children? Now, I could get on that soapbox, man. Because I'm tired of moms trying to be their daughter's best friend. It doesn't work. It does not work. And this idiocy of, we're just going to go party together. You are a bad mother. Period. Because you have released all guidelines... Because you're scared to death that they are going to hate you. And the little time that I've learned, your children are going to hate you. <laughs> I took my son to the Madison Mall a couple of weeks ago. On the east side, if you've ever been there, there's a play place. And they have those vinyled in couches. It's like this big rectangular like paradise for three-year-olds, okay? And all of the, all of the, the play furniture in there looks like it's made out of plastic, but it's not. It's shiny foam. You know, and I'm sitting there going, this is amazing, right? So I'm sitting there watching Nathaniel run around. He's dancing. I mean, I don't even know where he learned these moves from. Probably his mom. She's not in here, so I can say that. But anyway, (laughs) moving around, right? And there's these two blocks here and a block in the middle. And he climbs up and there's a little girl sitting up there. And I thought, this ought to be interesting. So I'm listening to him and Nathaniel's going, hmm. That's not my mom over there. There's a couple ladies sitting over there. You know, their kids are playing too. And I'm not kidding you. He's talking to that little girl. He looks over and he looks right at me and he points to me and he goes, and that's not my daddy. (laughs) Uh 
And I'm not kidding you. I was loud. I said, what are you talking about? And I knew it because I would have said the same thing if my dad was sitting there. So stewardship, raising them right. Just because they don't like us don't mean we stop. Jesus gives strength, right? How about Ephesians 1? Now, here's what's interesting. I'm going to try to preach this entire series on the church without touching much of Ephesians. We see how well that's going right now. Because Ephesians is such an incredible book about the church and about the magnificent grace of God towards the body of Christ. It's hard to say anything about the church without referring to it in some way. In fact, I would consider it Paul's greatest letter, even above Romans. Look at chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Now, we're going to read this in the New American Standard Bible. There's a free translation that you can get online called the Darby Bible. It was written by John Nelson Darby. He did a translation in 1890. It's a very good translation. I like it a lot, actually. Uh, In fact, last time I taught Revelation at a nursing home, I actually printed that translation out because it's public domain and distributed it amongst everybody because it was much easier to navigate through Revelation like that. So, verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will. Now remember, something that was previously unknown, but is now being made evident to everyone. And look what it says. According to his kind intention. In other words, that's what fuels Jesus to show that to us, okay? His kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration. Does everybody see the word administration? Dispensation. In fact, does anybody, in you, if you have a very translation, does anybody have the word dispensation there? Okay, so you have that there, you have that there. Excellent, excellent. It's a good translation. To the dispensation. What dispensation is Paul talking about here? Watch this. The administration suitable to the fullness of times. The fullness of times. Everybody see that? Mark that. The fullness of times. What is the fullness of times here? That is, and if you have the NASB, just make a little circle around that is and put a little light slash through there because it's in italics. It's not really in the original. Kind of messes it up a little bit. So notice Paul immediately expounds upon what that is. The summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. What is the fullness of times? It's the millennial reign of Christ. When all things will be brought. When he rips through the sky and he establishes his kingdom. That's what we're talking about here. Now, if you would, look at the board. Let's see the Darby translation, how it varies just a little bit. I think it grabs it a little bit better. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself... For the administration of the fullness of times to head up all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things upon the earth. That's the idea. It is an administration. It is a stewardship. In other words, there is a time in the future where the chief parameters of responsibility are going to be all based upon Christ. And the reason why he makes that known to us is because it is his good pleasure to let us know now what the fullness of times is going to look like. The great thing is, is he is going to oversee and manage all of it. It's going to be run from his perspective perfectly. This is also what we would call is a really good Scrabble word here, theocracy. You know what that means? It means your president tells the truth. It means you don't have to worry about lies. Means you don't have to worry about taxes. Jesus Christ will reign perfectly. 
Psalm 2 tells us he will reign with the rod of iron. Why will he need to reign with the rod of iron? Because those human beings who are in the kingdom are still going to sin. And so he is going to administer justice perfectly. But he wants to let us know in the future time, there will be a perfect stewardship where all things in heaven and on earth, a perfect dispensation time, all of that will be overseen by him. You know what this tells us? This goes to two weeks from now, two, three weeks from now. It tells us that the millennial reign of Christ is a dispensation all its own. That's what it tells us. The millennium is a dispensation all its own, the time of the kingdom to come. It's important to know. How about the next one, Colossians? A lot of people have trouble with this Colossians passage, Colossians 1. If you don't know, uh, Ephesians and Colossians are sister books. If you were to read through Ephesians from beginning to end, and then you turn around and immediately read Colossians from beginning to end, you will find a lot of parallels in between the two. Ephesians emphasizes the importance and the blessings and the grace poured out to the body of Christ, the church. Colossians emphasizes Jesus Christ as being the head of the church. And so you actually fit them together. You have some incredible stuff going on there. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. His body is the church. Everybody see that? So he's suffering right now, and he's suffering for the church. He's giving himself, and and here's the thing. Why do Christians suffer? Christians suffer because they hold fast to the truth. That's the reason why Christians suffer. So that's what's going on here. Look what he says here. And filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now that messes a lot of people up because they're saying, okay, wait a second. So are you saying that when Jesus was on the cross and he died, he left some suffering undone that still needed to be done? No, that's not what we're saying because that would render Christ's death on the cross insufficient. And with a lot of people that preach a works gospel today, you would come to that conclusion as well. This church stands on the fact that the work of Christ on the cross is completely sufficient to save. It needs nothing else added to it whatsoever. So that's important. So what are we saying here? Well, is the church not his body? Yes. Some of us don't seem sure. Is the church the body of Christ? Yes, we are. Now we say it real good because I got your attention. So when you and I suffer for righteousness sake, we are participating in the same sufferings as Christ did. We are participating alongside him. Not to add something to Christ's suffering. His suffering for us was complete. But what we find is we have a common ally in that suffering. That's the idea. Now look at verse 25. Of this church, and notice this church is marked out. I was made a minister according to the stewardship. There it is. According to the administration, the oikonomia, the arrangement from God bestowed on me. For your benefit. Here's the reason. So that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. It's a responsibility. He's got to get it out there. He's got to remain faithful. There's a lot to it. We're almost done here. 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1. And just so you know, I left a couple of verses in Ephesians out. Because then I would just have to start the whole book and we'd be here forever. 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 and 4. 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 and 4. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. Here's the reason. So that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. 
nor to pay attention. And I think it's really interesting, that word pay attention, if you've got the NASB, you've got a little marginal note next to it, it says to occupy yourselves, to become obsessed with or to get off track and looking at something else. And what is that? With myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering. And I think that we need to take that word furthering out. It makes sense without it. Rather than the administration of God, which is by faith, administration, the stewardship, the plan, the arrangement. In other words, he left Timothy there in order to let people in the church know who are stirring up the church with needless, idle This doesn't matter in the scope of eternity whatsoever type stuff. No, we are not focusing on that. Whatever you're consumed with, whatever your pet doctrine is that you want to camp out on, well, you're not King James only. That's fine. It's not going to kill anybody. But there are some people that want to set up their entire camp and die on that hill. Guess what? You have gotten the church off of the administration, the plan that he's put forward. Of moving forward by faith. We now want to argue, quarrel, gossip, complain, post on social media. All of it distracts the church from its mission. Its its mission is to be about the plan, the administration, the management put in front of us, which is by faith. And that's the only way that a church moves forward is by faith. Paul calls attention to this warning here. How about Titus? Titus 1. We're going to make it right on time. I know that's unusual. See, all kinds of miracles are happening today. Titus 1, verses 5 through 7. And let's be honest, if you guys just flipped faster, we I mean, we, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. That's a millennial right there, passing the blame on to somebody else and playing the victim. All right. Verse 5. All you younger crowd really like that one. Verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete. That you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's what? Steward. Every elder in this church has a responsibility has a duty to fulfill, myself especially. They're here to manage. And it's not just about managing the church. It's about managing the plan of God for the church. Unfolding. The current church age dispensation is what we are speaking about. An elder oversees or manages those things. Elders, are you doing it faithfully? Important point to think about. Last passage, 1 Peter. This will whet your appetite a little bit for spiritual gifts, but not too much. 1 Peter 4. The most important thing I want you to, to get from this is the fact that this is written to all believers. Every single person in here, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this right here applies to you. 1 Peter 4, look at verse 7. The end of all things is near. You say, wait a second. When was this written? Probably the 60s AD. It was imminent in Peter's time. Guess what that tells you about now? It's even closer. Okay? It's not, well, he must have been lying. No. 
He's letting you know the next thing to happen on the prophetic time clock is the rapture of the church. And when it happens, gone. And everything ignites at that moment. We're just waiting. We're just waiting on the Lord. So notice, he's using this idea of the end of all things is near as a motivator to get us to think soberly about how we're living life. Now watch this. The end of all things is near. Therefore, because of that, be of sound judgment. And notice that spirit's been added. Be sober. Be sober. I'm tired of people talking about that the Holy Trinity of Wisconsin is brats, cheese, and beer. Tired of it. Tired of it. Because that's worldly abuse. It's not things for holiness and godliness. Be sober. Get with it. Be a one and done person. Notice it says here, be of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of what? Uh Uh-oh. What's our prayer lives look like? If the end is near, you should be praying more. Everybody see that? And watch this. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Everybody look around. Yep, that means them. Right? Yep. It does. Tom too. I love Tom. I love him to pieces. That's why I joke with him. Be fervent. You know what the word fervent means? White hot. Be white hot in your love for one another. Why? Because love and unity are one of the or love is one of the two things alongside unity that sets the church apart from any other gathering in this world. They will know you're my disciples by the way that you what? You love one another. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Yet it's not happening a lot of times. Be white hot in your love for one another. Why? Because the end of all things is near. Look what it says here. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Because you're loving people beyond their unlovableness. That's good. Look what it says. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. <laughs> Don't you think Peter was just cackling when he wrote without complaint? I think he was. Be hospitable. One okay, I can do that without complaint. Oh, gosh. The Holy Spirit had to get in there. And, all right. But verse 10 is where we want to draw attention. As each one has received a... Everybody see the word special? It is, but that's probably not necessary. Each person, each believer in Christ has received a spiritual gift. A gift. You have something, when you came to to faith in Christ at that moment, God gave you something as part of the church age blessing for you to exercise amongst one another. And look what it says here. Each one's received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good. What's the word? Stewards. In other words, God has given you a spiritual gift which you are to exercise within the body of Christ to edify the body of Christ. But the problem is, is a lot of people don't want to do that or they want to do it for themselves. That was the problem in Corinth. Everybody wanted to speak in tongues and not everybody had the gift of speaking in tongues. Why did they want to speak in tongues? Because it made them look cool. That's why. Corinth is like high school. That's all they cared about. How does it make me look? There is nothing about that that edifies the body whatsoever. And that's why Paul has to come in with scathing rebukes about their abuse of the gift of speaking in tongues. If you have a gift, you are to exercise it in the body amongst one another. Notice, as good stewards, good managers of the manifold grace of God. Because giving us a gift 
is an evidence of his grace, and it's only effective if you are exercising it for the edification of one another. Now, we're going to talk about gifts a little bit later. But the fact is, is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a gift. And you are therefore a steward, a manager of the gift that God gave you. Because when you exercise it faithfully, as he has said, for the edification of everyone around you, you are now being a good manager of his grace. That's the idea. I've said this before. Raise your hand if you benefited from Pastor Steve's preaching. Okay. Do you realize that's one man exercising his spiritual gift and you've all been edified by that? You see that? What if somebody with the gift of mercy exercised their gift so that it would edify the rest of the body? Their gift of administration so it edified the rest of the body? Their gift of giving so it edified the rest of the body? Guys, the preaching ministry, preaching and teaching his gifts are only two pie or two pieces of the entire pie of spiritual gifts that can take place within the church. And we sometimes wonder, why do I come to church and I just don't feel very built up or very loved or very edified? Are you exercising your spiritual gift? Because if you're exercising your spiritual gift and you are sending that out to edify everyone else and you're encouraging them to use their gift, they're edifying you in return and you can't help but the church to always be going up all the time. That's the way churches grow. I don't care about numerical growth. Forget all that. Holy Spirit growth is the church edifying one another, building itself up in love. Now, I can't go any further because that's Ephesians 4. So what are we seeing today? Number one, we're seeing that just the word, dispensation, is an extremely biblical word. And it's used to mean managing, stewarding something, an administration that requires responsibility, faithfulness. It was a calling or a task. Notice it it wasn't this. It wasn't a job. Did everybody notice that? It's not a job. This is something that has been entrusted to all of us. Now, I wrote down my application because I knew I wouldn't remember it. As we move forward and we see dispensations... This will show us God's faithfulness to his word and his plan for history. He is managing his economy and he does so according to his word. And God is intentionally unfolding history as he wants to show us his faithfulness. That's the whole point. The Bible has been unfolded to show you various times of his stewardship. And he wants you to know exactly how he works in each age. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for our time together. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness to your word. This is a little bit more of an academic study, but I pray we're not lost on it. That we would recognize it over and over and over. We see that a dispensation is a stewardship, an administration. Something that requires faithfulness to be done successfully. That requires responsibility. And we see that you hold yourself to those standards and working with people in every age of history. Father, you just want us to know you. Let's just, let's just be flat about it. You desire for us to walk with you more intimately and more closely every day. Father, I pray that if we, we don't understand the, the weight of what we've just seen, add it to our hearts throughout this week. Give our minds conviction. May the Holy Spirit bring these things back around to us and build us up. We move forward. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.